This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films. Joined as always on this journey by the legendary journalist, retired journalist and football writer, Paddy to take you on this journey and through Old Trafford history. If you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to give a, a subscription and a review on the platform you listen on. And obviously, while you're here, once you've watched this episode, you can go back and enjoy um, between. 30 minutes and two hours of any other season in Manchester United history as well, depending on how the mood took us on that particular day. Yeah. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be the most eventful season that gets us talking for for a, a long time. Anything can happen. No, it's all seasons. quite unpredictable. <laughs> um, so the, the summer of 1962, uh, Paddy, another World Cup summer, mm. um, this one in Chile. Brazil knocked out England on the way to success. Um, Brazil and Czechoslovakia contested the, the final. Uh, Brazil mm. coming out on top. Notable because we've talked about formation changes a lot. Yeah. And I know that in the, the last World Cup, obviously Brazil had been pioneering this four-man defence. Well, both of the teams in the final played four-man defences this time round with two mm. dedicated centre-backs. Um, Brazil coming out on top. You know, they played a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-4, probably more a 4-2-4, knowing the Brazilians. Um, mm. And the Czech played a 4-3-3. There was some Scottish presence in the final. Um mm. Bobby Davidson was one of the linesmen, so a great year for um, Scottish influences in in football. Obviously, Dundee winning the league as well. We've got a little mention to that because I don't think we quite mentioned it enough in the last episode. (laughs) Only Um, only for about an hour. But um, (laughs) yeah, we we went on to play, Dundee went on to play in the European Cup in this season that we're talking about, 62-3. Did okay, did very well. Um, got to the semi-finals, knocked out by the eventual champions, Milan. Um, so it was, yes, another another uh, happy, happy uh, season for me. Um, but for Manchester United, it, 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 it well, it was extraordinary. It was, uh, I, I think, it, no, it's not, not a deal. Um, it's not a. It's not going to ruin the program's suspense for anybody. United fan watching this to know that it has a happy ending, but my word, it had a pretty sticky start, Wayne, didn't it? Yeah, it, it, and a strange one as well because I mean we've talked about these campaigns of two offs with Busby, yeah, and there, were, there are a few of them, but this one isn't really that. It's like, well, it, it kind of is, but more to do with the cup run rather than anything else because the start to the campaign is disastrous. They lose nine from the first fourteen games. They're conceding too many goals. Yeah. Um, looking unsure in midfield, and really, I mean, United they get a, a bit of an upturn of form in the, the autumn, so they sort of stabilized a little bit, yeah. But the, the sort of divide in the season is caused by the weather, isn't it? There's a it's a coldest winter, and, and I mean, in, in, of the 20th century, it was, and United didn't play from Boxing Day when they won 1 0 at uh, an, an already ominously frosty Fulham down by the river there at Craven Cottage. Well, narrow 1-0 win. 
And from Boxing Day, the next game was February the 23rd, which was a home draw with Blackpool and notable for the debut of a player who was to prove highly significant in not only this season, but in Manchester United's history. A player from Scotland. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, there's there was a couple of things. Obviously, this was a transfer that happened in the break in the time yeah. that United didn't have a game. But before they even signed this player, they had um, an ongoing claim for compensation against British Airways as yeah. a result of, obviously, the, the Munich Air disaster. Now, United yeah. have been claiming £273,000, and most of that uh, based on the value of the the players that were uh, the perished. Yeah. It's interesting because we go back to 1951, 1952, when Busby made this claim that he had 200,000 yeah. players in in reserve, really. And, and it's so interesting that that value comes up as such a clinical figure here because, I mean, by the time of 1958, it was widely accepted. It was a one story that was saying that Tommy Taylor could go for maybe treble figures, that, you know, yeah. coming up to £100,000. Yeah. Yeah. So he's even looking a little bit, well, a lot conservative from Busby's estimate, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but this was the figure that was basically used in court, 273,000, not in court, sorry, in the legal claim at the start, 273,000. But it was settled in the January of 1963 for £35,000. Um, the MEN, uh, were, their line from this was, the £35,000 does not represent the value to United of even one of the several of their star international players. And they've cited Edwards and Taylor, obviously. Um, mm. But Harold Ardman said, we are satisfied that if we'd pressed for a higher amount and gone into court, we do not know what had happened, what would have happened. And I think that the general consensus, Paddy, was that yeah. because it was, it was such a difficult thing to sort of put blame on people. It was such an emotional experience that you mm. would have, nobody really wanted it to go to court. And, you know, when you're talking about the clinical thing of figures and everything mm. like that, there has been this long um this long campaign against the the pilot you know they they you know yes. to sort of fight to absolve himself of any blame and so to put this kind of thing through a public spectacle wouldn't have been becoming for anyone would it no no definitely not and i mean how on earth do you put a, a price on the value of these players i mean how do you compare the footballing value with the, the loss of the of the bereavement of their families you know uh it it it, it is as you say it's a very um uncomfortable subject and uh, probably um you know the the question of blame was was shifted from 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 england to germany and so on and and it, 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 I, I, I'm sure that Hardman spoke for um, everybody when he said, you know, take it. There's a, one further factor um, which would have come in terms of the public perception of it, of, of the rights and wrongs of it. It would have been that United had just paid a, a record fee of 115000 for Dennis Law. Yeah. So, you know, this is not the behaviour of, a, of, a, of an impoverished club. Um, you can, you know, that's how, that's how it would have been portrayed, I think, in some, in some quarters. So, um, it, it, it's probably just a good idea to, to move on really. And, and, um, and, and, and put the whole, the whole question of, of trying to put a value on, on that team who died, um, to bed really. Yeah. I wonder how much of this played a part in the sort of consequential struggles that United would face. This is a podcast where we talk mainly about the football and what happened on the pitch. Yes, and the but, but it was an unhappy club, uh, it, relatively speaking, Wayne, at that time. I mean, there were there were feuds, with, as you know, the, as usual, there was tension between Busby and the board and the yeah. players in the post maximum wage era about how much they should be paid um <clears throat> and uh the, there were sort of cliques uh, i mean busby had set out in, in after the war to build a family not a football club and yet there were cliques beginning to break out we mentioned last week the tension between 
uh, a dressing room greatly influenced by the the uh, West Ham graduate Cantwell and uh, and the rather old school training regime of Jack Crompton. Um, but there were also Bill Fuchs didn't get on with Harry Gregg. Harry used to disparagingly refer to him as popular Bill. And because uh, um, Bill could be a taciturn fellow on his on his day. And, um, you know, other other cliques forming and, and so on. I mean, when Dennis Law uh, came, he, he said, listen, I just rose above it. I was just so happy to be out of Italy. Um, where which didn't suit his game at all, and, and to be back in in Manchester, I, you know, I just didn't care. I just went out and played my game, and sure enough, his goal scoring record was fantastic over the season. But yeah, there was a lot of unhappiness around the place by by Manchester by the standards which had been set by Busby certainly, um, and I think that contributed that a pretty poor dressing room contributed to the to the poor results though they did improve after the enforced winter break of two months yeah um and the other the other eventually, thing that, eventually it did yeah the other thing that we should mention although i did say oh and we'll remain true to being a football on the pitch podcast the the other issue that was so emanating i'm only mentioning it because it would be so rude and almost negligent to not mention it that because of the compensation claim yeah. and because United were having this sort of, it was not obviously an ongoing dialogue with the survivors' families and the survivors' families yeah. were always a little bit disgruntled by yeah. how little um, they received in way of compensation. And that never, I mean, that continued every, I mean, even 1998, I remember when they arranged a testimonial event for it. That's and right. It, 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 this carried on for years and we yeah. don't want to down, downplay their, we're talking about an emotional thing and a, and a human loss. You don't want to downplay that. So I'm just mentioning that obviously that was ongoing and probably still to this day rankles with some of the surviving family members of those. Uh, yes, the, the families, the, the Blanche Flower Berry, <coughs> Scanlon families, I'm sure, and 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 the former players themselves yeah. um, um, felt that they that they they weren't. I think. Probably if you look back on it, and it's, it's very easy to be wise after the event, but <clears throat> the club was was underinsured. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. We, I mean, we, that's something you mentioned in one of the previous. Also, yeah. the other thing was um, when, when we talk about it being unbecoming, the fact was that Busby was about to go into the, the transfer market and spend a hell of a lot of money again straight after yeah. the Dennis Law. So let's talk about that, um, that big buy that he's made in early mm. February. Um, so a week after Paddy Crerand, a halfback in Celtic, puts in a transfer request, um, he moves to Manchester for £56,000. I mean, Crerand, this is a midfielder with style and class, mm. passing quality that sets him apart. And he had, he talked about the personality of the dressing room and everything, the, the cliques that were forming. Busby was desperate for this kind of personality to come in, yeah. um, and, and Paddy Crerand had it in spades. He also had a confidence about his play. We've talked about Mark Pearson, we've talked about Alex Dawson, and maybe the the graduation to this kind of big stage was mm. you could see the pressure on on their shoulders. Mm. Basically, where Crerand wasn't going to have any of that. No, um, not, not not as a footballer. He claimed that it, you know he was oh I'm going to Manchester because you know how it happened. He he put in this transfer request. At, uh, at Celtic and uh, he'd just been to mass one uh, one Sunday and there's a knock on the knock on the door and he opens the door and there's a man who we in the journalistic community knew as the jolly his name was Roger jolly uh, Jim Roger and up in Scotland he was a complete legend he worked for the daily record but he it wasn't much of a writer, but he, he, he just made stories. He made stories for his newspaper by arranging transfers. I mean, he, 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 was, he was basically the fixer of Scottish football. And so he knocks on and Paddy says, oh, come in, you know, and he, he says, oh, son, he says, he always called everybody son. 
he says, son, you're going to Manchester United. He didn't say you might be going to Manchester. It's a bit like Ferguson ringing up David Moyes and saying, oh, you're, you're going to be the next United manager. He didn't say, would you like to be the next? It was just, yeah, that's it. He says, you're going to Man United, son. And, uh, and Paddy claimed that, you know, he'd never been out of Scotland hardly, you know, except to go on holidays in Ireland. Oh, Manchester, you know, I, I'm going to be, you know, fish out of water there, you know, what's it like, you know, and all that. Well, I don't think he was, and certainly as far as the dressing room was concerned, he was no, no naive, he was very sure of himself. I mean, an, an example of his quality or an illustration of his quality was that at the same time, Jim Baxter of Rangers, one of the best, most talented midfield players Scotland has ever seen, uh, was also known to be available. And so Matt went to Dennis and said, which of those two would you rather serve you from midfield? And Dennis loved Jim Baxter. Everybody loved Jim Baxter. And he was, you know, he's a cheeky lovely what the scots call gallus type you know not arrogant but cocky you know and fantastic footballer i mean he, he was picked i think twice for the rest of the world 11s you know i mean he was imagine a scottish player getting in one of those now and <clears throat> um apart from scott mctominay wayne before you <laughs> before you leap in there before you leap in um and you know um so Jim Baxter was a fantastic player, but Dennis, being a mate of his, knew that he liked the Bacardi and Coke a little bit too much. And uh, so Dennis said, I think uh, Paddy Creran would be more reliable. And he was proved right because, of course, Jim Baxter went down to was it Nottingham Forest, Sunderland, I think, at first. And then he went on to Nottingham Forest, paid £100,000 for him. But within a year, uh, he'd been sent back to Scotland on a free. Um, so it was definitely a good decision to um, uh, to pick the the more of a family man, uh, Paddy Crerand. And sure enough, Paddy came down to Ringway Airport with uh, Noreen, his wife, and uh, there was uh, uh, Matt with Dennis and die his wife diana his wife so uh this 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 really helped paddy to settle in although actually when he made when the the spring sorry the winter relented and he did make his debut it wasn't exactly you know he didn't exactly cover themselves in glory took two points from his from paddy's first six games and one or two of the fans were saying you know is this guy really any better than Nobby Lawton. Uh, well, after the, his first few games, it, it, he definitely proved. Uh, Nobby Lawton was actually sold for 11,500. And uh, it became clear that this man was, was definitely part of a, of a very exciting new Manchester United team. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Greg's comments about Bill Folks. Greg's probably going to feature a few times in this episode as well. Um, yeah. He had a great quote, um, or a couple, on Paddy Crerand as well. He said, I could run backwards faster than he could sprint. <laughs> but, no, this is true. No, if you were to list Paddy's um, attributes as a player, you'd it'd take you quite a long time, but you certainly wouldn't uh, dwell on his pace much. Um, <laughs> although, funnily enough, and when we get to the climax of the FA Cup campaign, we may have an interesting thing to say about, about Paddy and his and his pace. But uh, by and large, no, very, very slow, and uh, but uh, incredibly good in every other way, including, you know, he was always, you know, Manchester United would never be out-physiqued as long as he was around, you know, he was, yeah. he was tough. And if you add him to Morris Setters, you know, you, 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 in fact, it frustrated Busby that United was still leaking goals, even with these, this fantastic barrier in the midfield. Um, 
of these two real tough guys, not to mention Noel Cantwell at the back. Bill Fuchs, you know, they should not have continued to leak goals. And it frustrated Busby. And he couldn't write, really work out why, because he thought, I've now assembled a team that is ready to go like this. Yeah. But uh, eventually it did turn. And, and the FA Cup campaign, when I think, was the... Yeah, I mean... Was, was, was how it happened, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're quite right about Crown's introduction in, in terms of the, the league. Uh, they, I mean, they'd had a run just before Christmas of just one one defeat in nine, but then, mm. you know, the second half of the season was almost catastrophic again. There was shipping goals everywhere. One clean sheet in the league in 1963. One yeah. clean sheet and only a handful in the entire season. Um, I think there was a run of six defeats in eight games at one point. So United really snowballing um, down the league. Um, well, not snowballing down the league. They were remaining at the foot of the they league. Were actually, well, they were actually at the bottom at one for, for a week, weren't they? I, actually, for a little while. The, the, I mean, we'll talk about it when they get to the cup run, but yeah. the fact that they were in such a struggle was cited as a positive reason for, for how they performed in the cup run um, because they, they were having something to compete. Um, for. Yes. Yeah. Um, the players... Pride uh, being a little bit stung um, as, as they were going along. So, yeah, they, they would have to find success in the FA Cup because they declined to enter the League Cup again. Um, yeah. A lot of these games, because of the, the cold winter, or the <laughs> March must have been the busiest month on record because of how yeah. many games were played. Yeah. They, um, United pl were playing games every week in the Cup in March, uh, the third round, the mm -hmm. fourth round, the fifth round, and getting through. Um, to get to semi-final and then all the way to the final. Um, but still the league form, um, desperately poor. United really fighting to avoid relegation unthinkably, but they were. Um, and this came against the backdrop because people were worrying. Not worrying, they were wondering about why is the United team who's packed with this much talent and they've been backed with money, why are they yeah. struggling at the foot of the table? So when, in April... Match fixing allegations started to sprout yeah. in football. United yeah. was seen as one of the prime candidates for this. Um, mm -hmm. Sheffield Wednesday were embroiled in it, and they were so they had some players charged. Harry Gregg <laughs> remembered Saint Joe Caroline, who we know from previous episodes, is uh, full who's been in the first team, but now um, in the reserves. Um, mm. Joe Caroline went to visit him and basically said, "Have they been to see you yet?" And he was basically yeah. referring to. Um, the, the people who were involved in match fixing and Greg would have none of it. Um, and if he'd have been aware of it happening in the United side, he would have been one of the characters who would have stood up and spoke about it. Yes, he would. But um, it was definitely happening in football. A lot of players were found guilty. And, and the, to tie this back to United, there was this concern that United are playing so poorly, it must be right for United. Yeah, yes, exactly. Well, Busby, I think I. Uh, touched on it perhaps a bit early last week that 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 Busby, when it was brought to his attention uh, by the Daily Mail that Manchester United, yeah. the finger of suspicion had been pointed at the United dressing room, he muttered under his breath, "I knew it, I knew it." And um, anyway, he did. Um, you know, Manchester United did manage to escape unscathed from that. But as you rightly point out it was it largely uh, the taint was uh, largely centered on on Sheffield Wednesday three of whose outstanding players uh, were named and shamed by I think it was the people newspaper yeah yeah um uh, for 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 match fixing uh, Peter Swan superb England center half um Tony Kay a midfield player a good very very good uh, again, international class midfield player and a centre forward called David Bronco Lane, known as Bronco because uh, after a, a Western film character, uh, television character, David Lane, all were exposed and all later went to prison. So, uh, yes, it, there was a, a lot of suspicion around, around at that time and there were lots of... Um, um, as well as the actual money that changed hands, there were a lot of there, there were a lot of hints at it to unsettle people. There were a lot of there was a lot of anecdotal evidence of you know people whispering, "Hey, there's twenty quid to throw the game," you know, to try and put 
people off. So it was a it was a dirty sort of it was a murky atmosphere uh, mm. at that time. But uh, anyway, what's needed to lift the gloom and the cynicism is a good cup run. And United certainly had that among the um, among the the vanquished. Uh, I think it was in the quarterfinal, uh, a, res a, a buoyant Coventry City. Yeah. <clears throat> Jimmy Hill having contributed, uh, you know, very obviously to the smashing of the maximum wage, was now leading uh, a Coventry City, and and they they were they were one of United the teams United had to overcome in the quarterfinals of the of the cup. Yeah, um, but uh, yes, they United went on. Who did they play in the semis? Uh, Southampton. Um, Dennis Law proving uh, proving decisive again. Like you said, he yeah. settled into life at United, scoring plenty of goals. He scored a hat trick at his old against his old club Huddersfield in the third round oh, as well. Yes, of course, yeah. So um, it's something of a when you get something like that happening with Dennis Lowe obviously scoring those goals um, I think he scored, he scored against Chelsea as well in the, in yeah. the round so you having this feeling that you know as cup runs often do um, that there might be a little bit of destiny um, attached yeah. to um, but it wouldn't be a cup final for Manchester United without a bit of goalkeeper trouble Paddy um, <laughs> and, and yeah. we've got it again we've got it again um, but it was the Monday prior to the cup final basically um, yeah. the, the last league game of the season uh, was at Nottingham Forest and Busby named his team to go to this game uh, <laughs> and yeah. it was kind of like the squad obviously some key players would still travel but he was looking to rest as many as he could really mm. uh, Busby having invented squad rotation as mm -hmm. we mentioned previously and there are a few mm -hmm. players who were thinking oh, I really don't want to make this trip because it means I'm not going to be playing a Wembley yeah, yeah. Um, Frank uh, Haydock was one um, Shea yeah. Brennan who uh, playing at half back usually um, knew that Tony Dunn had sort of stepped in at right back now and he was yeah. playing really well there and Cantwell had sort of took his place at left back so there was a place for Brennan from half back and Brennan knew that if he was playing half back at Forest which was he was unlikely to be in the squad for, for Wembley. Yeah. Um Nobby Styles and uh, Dennis Walker. We'll talk about Dennis Walker more in a moment because he's very mm. notable for a couple of reasons. But Nobby Styles mm. So he picked up an injury at, at Forest, and and we had previously told to him about um, he'd done the usual. Um, this was the Busby way, wasn't it? If he was critical yeah. of a player's performance, how, was, how, how do you think you did? And of course, nobody ever thinks, thinks <laughs> nobody ever thinks they played a hundred percent game. So he's yeah, not bad. I could, I could have done. Uh, I think think you could do with a rest. That was his way of dropping players. So uh, Nobby got the Nobby got that uh, that impossible question. Have you stopped beating your wife? Question here. Yeah, and so that was um, the thing. The that was prior to the Forest game, I believe, and then he picked up an injury in the Forest game, and that was uh, a hamstring as well. So yeah, not good. He was, and then that he, I think he was frustrated at the fact that he'd had to go to Forest to try and. I think he was a little bit eager to try and make the cup final team, believing there was mm. still a chance to do so. Um, and then he was obviously a little bit, well, more than that, a little bit disgruntled after um, mm. because the injury was used as the reason to say. So I think Busby came out after the Forest game, after he picked up the injury and said, Oh, you would have been in my team, son. So Styles yeah. was even more frustrated than he would think. Oh, dear. Um, we get to the goalkeeper situation. Harry Gregg, meanwhile, had been playing reserve team football um, because he'd had this long-standing shoulder complaint. Now, he'd been out of the team for more... Well, he played the start of the season. Gaskell was a reserve team goalkeeper. But Gaskell had come into the first team now through Gregg's um, shoulder complaints. Ronnie yeah. Briggs, as you remember, as uh, standing who was never going to be a serious contender to, to replace either of them in the first team. He'd been the reserve team goalkeeper up until maybe the last four or five weeks of the season when Greg, under the belief that he could sort of take, there was some suggestion he was taking painkillers and there was they wanted him to have injections or something for the mm. shoulder injury. Greg had sort of fought against that, railed against it, but had this idea put into his head that if he did, he'd be ready for the final. Um, yeah. In the end, it wasn't the case. He wasn't selected. He wasn't very happy about it, to be honest. Uh, I remember when. I'm sure he said the same to you in private conversations. Um, and 
I don't think it's too much of a, a secret to leak that Greg was not very happy about missing out of the 63 final. No. Um, Styles, meanwhile, never unhappy enough to actually complain about Busby, but he did observe, observed growing tensions with Johnny Giles and Busby. They were Styles and Giles really close because their yes. um, Giles was married to Nobby's sister. That was about to be, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. about to be. Um, Giles, um, in training, had, had the Johnny Morris treatment from Busby where yeah. he basically, and Busby had asked him what he thought the role of a winger was, and Giles said, well, I thought it was to get to the byline and cross the ball like Johnny Berry did. And Busby said, well, why don't you try coming inside and beating your man? And as we know, obviously, if Busby was doing that, if he was intervening on that level, he was obviously doing it for good reason. Although Styles was... He's, Recollection on this was always interesting because he was shots that Giles and Busby didn't get on, uh, but this mm. was obviously the start of an issue that yeah. um, was going to um, prove terminal to their relationship. Um, yes, yeah. But so, did you see, uh, uh, Giles. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, uh, Wayne, yeah. but Giles had this person that he had the Johnny Morris type personality. You know, he he, le- he was a challenger. You know, and and so consequently, it was one time. Uh, at around the time that you're talking about, where uh, Busby did the usual thing, you know, he, he asked him after a game, "How do you think he played?" Because he was obviously planning to leave him out for probably quicksaw. Yeah. And Giles, you see, being a, a smart, says to him, "Well, boss, how did you think I played?" So Busby says, "Well." Not bad, actually. <laughs> he says, well, why are you dropping me then? Which nobody had done that to Busby before. So that just kind of, you know, Busby, you know, is, is the opinion that this kid is a bit of a smart ass, you know. And, and Giles does admit that he got that from his dad because he told the story about when he was a kid. They, his dad would idolize Stanley Matthews and, and, and they met. He took his little boy, Johnny Giles, to meet Stanley Matthews. And uh, Matthews was charming and gave him his autograph or whatever it was. And uh, they went away and, and, and little Johnny looks up at his dad and says, um, says uh, oh, um, wasn't it, what a nice man Stanley Matthews is for talking to us. And his dad says, yeah, but he knows bugger all about football. <laughs> so it obviously runs in the family. And uh, so they, while Giles was kicking back against Busby and, and Busby was thinking, hang on, who's the manager of this club? You know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was never going to work in the long term. But Giles did turn in some good performances and, uh, well, was to end up with you know, quite a lot to be pleased about in the season. Yeah, um, Giles, by the way, he made that trip to Forest, so he would have probably yeah. been thinking, I'm, I'm going to be cut <laughs> from yeah. the final team. As it turned out, um, he wasn't. He was in the final team. I'll put the yeah. team up in a moment. And in fact, I'll put it up now and you'll see. Um, I know that I normally put the, the tactics at the end, so obviously this is for people yeah. watching the video um, podcast. When I put the tactics up, and I'll be putting a, a different versions of this up because I'm putting the FA Cup team and the the usual team through the season. The, yeah, normal league team. Yeah. Um, but this lineup, which was on the BBC, obviously, you know, be, before the match, they put the graphic up of how the yeah. team is assembled. So you'll see on the screen right. there. Uh, it's a bit. It's a bit. So grainy. for those those who who are listening in 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 black and white. Um, audio only. It's Gaskell. Then it's as usual. It's two at two at the back, as always in programs and so on. Dunn and Cantwell as the fullbacks. Then there's Crerand and uh, Setters as the wing halves with Bill Fulks uh, between them. Although he would in fact have played between Dunn and Cantwell. Yeah. Uh, then the inside forwards Quicksall and Law. Giles are outside right. Heard sent David Heard centre forward and Bobby Child out Charlton outside left. Yeah, um, that's the and yeah, it's, it's shown on the screen just to show, like as, as Paddy quite rightly said there, that 
Bill Folks is still shown in the halfback line. It looks yeah. like a defensive midfielder. So even by 1963 yeah. standards, they're still showing it the same way. But it's, a th- it's basically a 3 2 2 3. At that yes. And, and, and I think in Busby's mind, if he, he might have been minded to put Quicksall to the right wing, have Styles in midfield, and leave out Giles. That would have probably been his inkling. Uh, otherwise, yeah, he almost thought for a moment that he was going to be playing without Paddy Creran because he was giving the team talk. And Paddy Creran was not present. Um, yeah, Harry Gregg remembered um, how Creran basically basically said that um, the big cup final tradition was um, the pre-match abide with me. In, yeah, uh, resonated around Wembley Stadium, and he'd heard about how it was such a special thing to experience in football. Paddy being Paddy wanted to experience it for himself. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to be sat in the dressing room while it was going on. So when Busby called for him, he was like, where's Paddy? Uh, Paddy's outside yeah. listening with the fans no, or joining I, in. With when you first told me that story, Wayne, I was thinking about it and I wondered if he'd sort of said, boss, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I would love to hear experience this. And Busby said yes. But it wasn't like Paddy just went. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> turned up obviously. Um, obviously, um, whatever he missed wasn't too vital because Paddy's influence in the cup final is, no. is remarkable, really. And this really is where Busby's um, his nous for really knowing yeah. what was best for United came in because he did slate this team with experience, he benefited. Really, I mean. Setters and Campwell are the beneficiaries of, of Brennan and Styles missing out because obviously Brennan would have played in the, the halfback line. Um, well, if you pull, if you look at what happened at Forest, he would have played in the halfback line, so he wasn't going to play in this. Um, it took a while for United to get settled in the cup final. They're playing against Leicester City. Um, mm. Leicester City had sort of cantered towards the end of the season, they weren't playing for anything, but they should have been three goals up, really. And this was another thing. Not the I mean, match they were the, the favourites, Wayne, because they'd finished fourth, and United yeah. had been struggling. So yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. but they should have been because I mean they were obviously in dominant form in the early stages. They should have been three 0 up. And mm. where we're talking about um, uncertainty over yeah. Um, yeah over players and the the reliability. Now there's no. I'm not saying this about David Gaskell at all. But people were looking at his position in the first 15 minutes and thinking, God, he's, he's not in good shape here. But I yeah. think you would attribute that to nerves. He was not looking really good at the start. Leicester yeah, he's trying to conquer his nerves by being sort of overconfident, if you see what I mean. There's a, yeah. I've, I've seen the film of it. Um, and one thing I noticed was that at one stage he comes out and he claims a high ball and already his eyes are on what he's going to do with the ball exactly. you know, in terms of rolling it out. And he makes the, the school classic schoolboy error of taking his eye off the ball and the ball bobbles over his shoulder. Luckily, it drops where he can safely grab it. And uh, there's Busby and uh, Matt Gillis, I think, is it? Leading the teams out, yes. Um, and it, it, now you we're talking goalkeepers, if we can... What what Wayne's just done is show the teams walking out, led out by their managers. And the second of the Leicester players, Leicester playing all in white because they'd lost the toss for strip. And their goalkeeper is a very familiar face, one Gordon Banks. Yeah. And if we're talking about this cup final, yes, David Gaskell... Um, did have a shaky start. When he dropped the ball incidentally over his shoulder, luckily it just bounced and he was able to collect it. And there was a look of relief on his face that made you think, well, he's going to calm down now and be more. Uh, but in fact, he, he didn't. However, the great unspoken word about this game is that Gaskell was the better of the two goalkeepers. Banks yeah. had an absolute nightmare yeah it's been rewritten out of history because the late gordon banks of course is rightly seen as uh, one of england's greatest goalkeepers of all time and possibly the author of the greatest save of all time mm. but and he'd been just 
you know, uh, he was about to be made England's goalkeeper by by the new manager Alf Ramsey, and uh, yet he had a, one of the biggest Wembley nightmares of all time in this game. However, um, let's deal with that as and when we come to it. Yeah, I mean, after that shaky start, obviously, Leicester looking like they were dominant, but United, yeah. it's, it's the unwritten rule of cup finals, isn't it? You've got to score when you're on top, because if yeah. you don't, um, the yep. disaster can strike, as it did for Leicester when Dennis Lowe... I mean, Kreren had already started to sort of take hold of the game at this point. Um, yeah. yeah. United, um, they were benefiting from the experience. Busby, the clinical use of putting the experience of like Crerand and Setters and Campwell in, it was really starting to pay off once United were settled. And Dennis Law, uh, one of again, we talk about things that don't really get mentioned. His goal in this cup final is magnificent and it completely well, changed. Well, in my moment. opinion, it's the most underrated goal ever scored in a cup final. I, I, I mean, there have probably been better goals, but I don't think any has ever received uh, not been given as much credit. Mm. Uh, as this one, it, and, and as you rightly say, Crerand was beginning to become the dominant figure in in the game, and it was half about half an hour had gone, and one of the Leicester players took a throw, and it was a bit off target, and Crerand's brain took him there, and this is why I was laughing about pace because sometimes class overcomes makes you look quicker than you are and this was a perfect example because the the trajectory of his run he took the ball from the loose throw and his momentum carried him into the kind of position you would expect an outside left just to the left of the penalty box and if can i just dwell on the goal here because i wrote about it and uh, the midfielder's change of pace and believe you me, that's Crerand because of the, the momentum of his run. Took him deep into the penalty area where he gently squared the ball. Law let it pass between Norman and Appleton, between the two defenders, and let it run behind him while smoothly turning onto his right foot. And then, instead of shooting where Banks would have expected it, again, rolled it between Norman and Appleton, who, who were running back, you know, like, you know, fireman late to the fire, and rolled it back between them into a corner where the goalkeeper had no chance of getting it. The roar was deafening, as you often get with a goal where, will he, won't he, what's he doing? You know, oh, and it just rolls it to the net. One of those sort of drawn out finishes uh, but Dennis knew exactly what he was doing. And uh, the the roar was fantastic, and United were on their way. And in the, in the second half, uh, um, um, uh, Charlton tried a shot. It wasn't much of a shot, but Banks spilled it. Um, and David Heard scored the first of two, what would prove to him, two easy goals, both, both caused by faults by Gordon Banks. Um, Keyworth reduced the deficit, but um, uh, when um, United got, Heard uh, got his second goal, that was that was it, 3-1. And uh, that was after Law had done a brilliant thing. He played a run two with Heard and headed against the post. And, and Heard then uh, profited again. So that was... Um, that was that was a that was a terrific end to the season and, and Law's goal was his twenty ninth in forty four appearances, which is not bad, is it? No. Um, it's pretty good. And uh, and uh, Her Majesty the Queen uh, handed the cup to the man who was now United's captain in succession to Morris Setters. There he is, big Noel Cantwell, placing the crown on Albert Quicksell's head. Uh, David had has the, the what do you call it plinth whatever yeah. the cup rests on. Paddy Crown's trying to put it on his head. Uh, Bobby Charlton's looking miserable as usual. <laughs> and there's John Giles, uh, and uh, he is being 
almost consoled by Morissetta's as if, you know, he's thinking, he said something about, well, how's Busby going to react to that? Um, cause, cause, because he had had a good game, John Giles. Uh, so there we are, jubilation. And United's first trophy since Munich. Yeah. Maybe that's played into a little bit of Gaskell's early nerves because if you look back through the years, obviously we talked about United's infamous struggle with goalkeepers in cup finals. But they'd also yeah. the, the 57 and 58 finals being ex- not expected to win in 58, but mm-hmm. maybe the a public wave of momentum thinking that, that, that they stood more of a chance on what they did. And obviously in both of those finals, they suffered goalkeeper trouble in the game as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe you've got Gaskell worrying about that. And the, you can imagine what the emotion must have been like once low scored yes. because it was the first time that United had been ahead in a cup final since that late burst in 48. So to finally have this sort of feeling that the, the cup um, is there to be won and the heartache is finally over, both in the post-Munich um, years, but also the... Um, the the cup final um unluck um, lack of luck that they'd suffered in in previous years so they finally got over that and then um the the jubilation that they would have had with heard um twice giving them a two goal lead um yeah there, there are a couple of things notable <coughs> in the um in the aftermath like we said earlier on or hinted at earlier it was observed that United's pride had been hurt in the mm. in the sort of difficult underperformance in the league um, mm-hmm. where they were having to work so hard to avoid relegation that it had actually helped their focus in the pri- in the, the closing weeks of the season because they had something to play for and something with the cup final obviously a massive showpiece occasion to show that they you know they could be better than what the league suggested uh, the league position suggested whereas Leicester once they'd done so well and they had overachieved for themselves but towards the end of the season they had little to play for because they weren't going to win the league and they weren't going to they weren't going to get relegated and they were all looking forward to the cup final they obviously had that problem of having a few weeks to look forward to the cup final unfortunately yeah. um, whereas united were a little bit sharper in in their focus um colin appleton who was the leicester skipper said after the match i can't understand how that team finished where they did mm-hmm. in the league which sort of says it all um, in terms of what United had, had gone through that season. Um, so we'll go through the squad then and the statistics for this season. Put Pat Crown up first, but um, we'll get to him in a little while. We're going to go through the rest of the team first. Harry Gregg was the first choice when available. 28 appearances um, and 24 of those in the league. But Gaskell obviously came through as, as Gregg had his injuries. 20 appearances and 18 of those in the league. Shea Brennan would have felt notably aggrieved at, at missing out playing. Obviously, played a lot of games at halfback as well, but he played 41 of games in all competitions and 37 in the league. Campwell, um, 30 appearances in all competitions, one goal, 25 and one in the league. Tony Dunn, um, now making his position the right uh, back slot uh, while Campwell was a left back. Dunn played 25 in the league, 28 in all competitions. Pat Crerand, after um, signing, played 22 games, 19 of those were in the league. Bill Folks, um, 47 appearances in all competitions, 41 of those in the league. Uh, so he only missed a single game all season. Frank Haydock um, making a single league appearance. Nobby Lawton before his um, sale, 12 appearances in the league. Jimmy Nicholson with 10 league appearances as well. Maurice Setters um, with one goal in 33 appearances, 27 of those appearances in the league. The, the goal was in the league as well. Nobby Styles um, scored two goals in 35 appearances, um, both of those goals in the league in 31 appearances. So a really good contribution from Nobby Styles, and yeah, he would have probably felt a little bit sad to have missed out on that cup final as it turned out he wouldn't get another chance so when you know these cup finals i know united had had five uh, three in five years now five or six years so you might have thought that they come around more often um as often as an embarrassing exit to sheffield wednesday in early mm. rounds mm. uh, but yeah there wouldn't be another chance for nobby styles unfortunately um brings us to the forward line we talked about dennis law earlier on he was the top goal, goal scorer this season with 29 in 44 23 in 38 in the league um, bobby charlton nine goals in 34 appearances seven in 28 in the league 
Phil Chisnell um, made six appearances and scored a single goal in the league. And Johnny Giles, five in 42, four in 36 in the league. Heard after an impressive um, debut season where he'd been the top goal scorer. Now he's moving into this sort of secondary role, even though he scores two goals in the cup final, the decisive goals as well. Um, 21 goals in 43 games, 19 in 37. Quick's all the other main player in that um, forward line this season, 11 in 36, 7 in 31 in the league. And the other sort of peripheral squad members, Ian Moyer, we talked about him in previous episodes, just one goal in nine league appearances. I've been looked so promising earlier on in his career and now a peripheral um, peripheral figure at the moment. Sammy McMillan, four league appearances without a single goal. This brings us to the last player on the list who, like Haydock, made only one single appearance. But very notable for a couple of reasons. Dennis Walker, um, the first black player to represent Manchester United. He came through the youth system. He was one of the players who played in that um, much changed team down at Nottingham Forest in the, the build-up to the mm-hmm. Cup final. Um, so obviously very notable for, for his role in, in pioneering um, being the first black player for United. It'd take a while for the second one, by the way, so um, shouldn't discount that. And yeah, he come through the ranks, very popular with the, the players as well. Um, but not his only notable place in Manchester history. And if you don't know the story of Dennis Walker, you'll be blown away by this. Following retirement um, as a player, he, he worked in security and he was working at the Arndale Centre on the morning of June the 15th, 1996. He was notified of a, a threat from the IRA just before 10am um, that a bomb would detonate in 90 minutes' time. It's important to remember that at the time, um, especially in Manchester and Liverpool, you'd get a lot of these hoax calls. Yeah. So you could easily dismiss it. And they happened at football matches as well. I mean, we'll come to it in due course, but I mean, players' careers were affected by this. And some some people with religious beliefs and, and background backgrounds, people who were associated with new people in the IRA, they'd have different levels of seriousness with how they treat this. Some people would say it's deadly serious. Other people would say it's a hoax. People are just messing about. So you could have easily dismissed this as a, ho- a hoax. Dennis decided not to do that. He worked with his team to successfully evacuate the, the Arndale Centre. I believe there might have been as, even more than 50,000 people there at the time. But they successfully evacuated it. And of course, on this occasion, it wasn't a hoax. And there was a bomb and it did go off. And it was yeah. thanks to Dennis's work um, that there were no deaths yeah, it's, the story doesn't end there because I mean that is heroism by itself to sort of take it seriously and, mm-hmm. and to be so proactive to do this like within the space of ninety minutes to completely clear the center. But as he was leaving the center, it shows you how close it was to sort of in, in getting this done. Really, as he was leaving the center, following the final check, the bomb went off and it blew Dennis across the road. Um. From it's hard to explain if you haven't been to Manchester. It's a it's a fair old way to travel from across the road from where the Arndale is. Yeah, there's there's a main well a main road. There's a road and there's a tram track there now. So it's a big distance to sort of travel in the air. But the explosion blew Dennis across the road and he hit Debenham's window. Thankfully, like all of the people in Manchester, um, survived. Um, yeah. thanks to his heroism and just he's incredible when, when you think Paddy of like yes he's already got his place in history but to do a hero- heroic act like that is just um people yeah. don't know like Dennis Walker yeah it, 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 that's that's right I mean maybe there was um because they had different code words yeah and, and he may have been advised that that this was a serious threat because a certain code word had been used in the in the um, in the call to the police, but I mean it was an extraordinary uh, evacuation uh, that was done. Incidentally, I I mean I don't know, but I'll bet there were a lot of Germans among those evacuated because Germany were in, the German football yeah. fans were yeah. in town, and a lot of them. You know, a few, quite a few of them must have gone shopping 
um, on the day of, I think it was the day before they played the Soviet Union or um, in, in Euro 96 in, yeah. in, at Old Trafford. So, uh, yeah, it was that, that's, a, that's a remarkable story about Dennis Walker and, um, and, 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 you know, uh, great to be reminded of, of him. He, as you rightly said, he'd come through the youth team, was very popular and, um, and highly rated and such was the quality of what was coming through. Dennis was a winger <clears throat> and, uh, well, there was a winger coming through, uh, at that time. Um, in fact, when the team got back to their London hotel with the cup, Paddy Crerand remembered their coach returning to the hotel in London and looking out of, Paddy remembered, looking out of a top floor window, you know, all excited. And the Gog was one of the youth, that taken all the youth team down. And there was a little slim, dark haired lad uh, and, and Paddy remembered him because he had to, he was supposed to be quite a good little player. And his name was uh, George Best. And at the banquet afterwards, Harry, as you rightly say, Harry Gregg was miserable. Gaskell was having fun. And so Gregg, who'd been left out, sort of chose a different table and, and, and didn't want to be, you know, long face in, in the middle of the celebrations. And this boy, this dark-haired boy, George Best, walked over to him, you know, obviously fellow Northern Irishman, and said, um, Harry, can I bring my, my daddy over to see you? And uh, Harry Gregg says, no, no, I'll go over and see your dad. And he went over to speak to Dickie Best. And uh, and that was, that was George Best. His... Although he was only just 17, his um, first team debut was only months away. Mm. So the Manchester United team in our next episode will include Law, Charlton and Best. So if there is any doubt that a great new team is forming, I think that holy trinity will uh, sweep it all away. Let's have a look at how the team lined up then in this. Um, we looked at the cup final team that was already there. Um, so this is the how they generally were in the league. That's yeah. Brennan had mostly played at right back before Dunn came into to that position. Styles, obviously. Crerand, had, he was definitely a first-team player, so don't let this representation um, sway your opinion on that. It's literally put in there to reflect... Styles had played 35 games and Style uh, Crerand had played 22. Obviously, Styles got to be given his fair mention there. And yeah, the forward line pretty much the same yeah. for, um, for as it looked in the cup final lineup as well. Um, you're quite right, Paddy. United, red, white, and white again. Uh, but with the cup final being televised, they had to do a coin toss with Leicester because the blue shirts would look the same on black and white TV. Um, Leicester lost the toss and had to wear white. Um, yeah. United in their away strip of all white, which I'll just pop up here as well. You'll see a great picture that's just after Crerand came. Um, oh, yes. And Harry Gregg not looking happy at all. <laughs> Probably already aware that he's not going to be playing in the cup <laughs> final. The yeah. average attendance this season, 41,297. Ah, Dennis Law, yeah. yeah. top scorer, three hat-tricks as well in that 29. One time he even scored four goals, uh, the four in a win at Ipswich. One of the hat-tricks, incidentally, in a in a loss at Leicester, 4-3, um, <laughs> that he would get his revenge, obviously. Key result this season being the FA Cup win, Paddy, I think it's fair to say. Elsewhere in football, you've got Dundee's heroic European Cup run, which felt <laughs> at the last. Everton won the league. City were relegated. Birmingham won the League Cup. Birmingham finished one place lower than United in the league, one place above relegation, uh, where City mm. were in the last relegation spot. So yeah. both of the Cups going to teams on the periphery of relegation. Um, but as you quite rightly say, United already regenerating in the youth team and hopefully they'll have, I mean, not just uh, youth players to show in the first team, but um, hopefully Jimmy Murphy can deliver on that FA Youth Cup promise that he made Bambusby as well. Um, 
who knows what will happen in the next episode um if you're watching on the uh, on the old youtube please give us a like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comment section if you're listening back to us on the audio podcast please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on thanks for watching thanks for listening we'll be back next ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.